Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast with your blacksmiths, Tara O'Brien and Ron Duran Jr. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. It's time to harden the f*** up. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. We are so excited to have David Bidler hang with us today. He is one of our favorite new speakers, also an author and leader in professional development. This guy has a lot going on in the world of helping people to find the strength they need in one way or another. He's the CEO of Breathe to Perform, which shares the science of stress management and peak performance with industry leaders and their teams. David proudly serves as the president of the nonprofit organization Physiology First, which provides brain and body-based education to students and teachers all around the U.S. And he also owns the Distance Project for Strength and Conditioning in Freeport, Maine, and is an avid athlete and ultramarathon runner. Wow, we could we could probably spend two hours talking to David about about these topics that are that are you know uh, near and dear to both Tara and I because we work with young people, and I know that is a lot of what you do. So why don't we start off with you run a company called Physiology First. Why don't you tell us about that a little bit and, and uh, maybe share the mission of, of what you're trying to do? Well, well, first off, I'm so honored to be here. And I love that you guys are right in the, the heart of it, working with young people at a really critical juncture in time. So it means a lot to me to be able to connect with both of you and to connect with the audience through the, through the outlet that you've created. So thank you. Uh, Physiology First is actually a nonprofit organization. And it, it's, it came from some of the, uh, the work that we've been doing. We own a strength and conditioner, conditioning center here in Freeport, Maine. And I was spent the past couple of years working with athletes, a lot of young athletes, athletes throughout the entire life cycle. We have folks in here who are you know, 10 years old coming with their parents and we have folks who are in their eighties. And some of the concepts that we started to dive into as we, as we worked to put this whole fitness thing into some kind of perspective in a way that mattered beyond the race course or mattered beyond the weightlifting competition in a way that we were actually training to build characteristics and skill sets and tools for life. We thought, as I, as I heard what more of our young athletes were going through, I thought, why is it only sport that seems to be the, the mechanism and the medium to have a lot of these conversations? I didn't see that happening a lot in other outlets in the educational space. Where were you coming to work hard with other people, talk honestly with other people and train with other people? purposely train and purposely adapt for the com complex and challenging world that we live in. And as we, as we grew the, the distance project, our gym here, we thought, you know, if we can create a system where some of these concepts that seem to live on the edge of the fitness, human performance, medical, medical science and sports space, if we can start to build them into the very foundation of education, if we can start to learn about our brains and our bodies, regardless of if you signed up for a sport program, regardless of if you're a young person who considers yourself an athlete. If these basic principles around brain and body health were integrated into the structure of education, then everybody would have this basic toolkit. And then if they wanted to pursue the medium of sport, that's fantastic, that's one outlet, but we're all in the sport of life. And I didn't think that should be exclusive to someone who considered themselves a, a field athlete or an athlete specifically. So Physiology First, our nonprofit really grew out of our work at this endurance training center uh, in Freeport, Maine called The Distance Project. The sport of life. I love it. I love I it. Know. And, I know. I'm um, in on that too. 
you mentioned the brain body connection and I know a lot of, or I don't know, I guess, uh, I assume a lot of what you do is, is focusing on the mental side of it. Right. And how do we, how do we create those, those mental, um, you know, in sports psychology, the mental skills training, I, I assume you do things like that. What is, what does that look like for, for you guys? Uh, do you, do you work in that, in that kind of that space? You know, the, the, the reason that we, called the organization Physiology First. And the reason that we took the approach that we did is I think that we're at a critical moment in time where we can get through conversations and outlets like this and like the work that you guys are doing, we can start to even ask, well, what does mental mean? What is the mind? What is the brain? What is the body? What is the environment? When is the optimal um, time to start to ask, let's say psychological questions or mental questions in, 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 in a process of trying to figure out what physiological state the person that we're talking to is even in. So we call it physiology first because we wanna help, help young people understand how to navigate brain and body states that, that are somewhat resonant, that make some sense in terms of the environment that we're in. I'll give an example. If we have a student who is um, sitting in a math class, hyperventilating chronically with their heart rate well above what it, would norm, what, what, what it should be based on the act of sitting down and learning, and they're exhausted and their sleep quality has tanked and they really don't have a background in what nutritional programs make sense and they're completely sedentary. Their physiological state is gonna drive a mental um, mm, set, yes. set of mental processes that if I were to try to work with them immediately on mindset, there's so many things going on under the hood that are gonna put them in a, a state of mind that's more likely biased towards stress, towards anxiety, towards lack of focus, towards lack of attention. So our approach was, could we, could we work to find some common, simple tools to help students manage their body from a pure physiological perspective? We talk a lot about breathing because breathing is something that's accessible, free, and universal. It crosses cultural barriers, economic barriers. And then sleep, some of the kind of low-hanging fruit things. And we could help that student be in a more optimal state to actually have these complex conversations about our mind, about developing grit, mental toughness, resilience, that we could simply do that first. So physiology first is helping students basically manage body states so that we can get to the higher order conversations from a, a perspective of clarity and, and from a, a perspective that's a little more optimal to get an honest reflection of where they are mentally. I love that you're taking such a holistic approach and it's literally backing up to the beginning first. I just love that you go physiology, well, physiology first, right? Before attacking the, like you said, the difficult conversations. And when you say difficult, you know, it makes me think of some of the terms that we throw around. And I know you've talked to this before, um, have negative and, and positive um, connotations to them. When we talk about physical fitness, right? We all love physical fitness. Physical fitness is a super positive word. Nutrition value is even super um, positive. Even we've gotten to in the last maybe decade uh, to meditation and breathing is very positive. But when you start to go in the holistic circle to the words mental health, right? Or mental wellness. And I love the word or uh, the phrase mental fitness. I'm, I imagine you, you hit some resistance with people and that's just had such a negative um, concept behind it before. What do you have to say to all of that to help us break free of, of that negativity? I love that question. It's, it's, that's really at the heart of our work is, you know, we're in a new moment in time and a new moment in science. We know more about the processes that drive the brain and body than we ever did. And so one thing we really try to do is to work from the standpoint 
of empathy and understand that up until fairly recent breakthroughs in neuroscience and stress physiology, we're kind of wondering what was going on under the hood of the car by walking around it and making guesses and kind of listening and <laughs> wondering what the heck is happening under there. And then recently we've been able to kind of pop open the hood and say, oh, wow, this is, this is what happens to a brain when someone's hyperventilating all day long, when they're intolerant to carbon dioxide, when they're dealing with kind of breathing dysfunction, when they're exhausted, when they're not eating well, when they're not sleeping well. So to understand that when we talk about these things that the public at large may not have been exposed to a lot of these conversations. And to them, mental health is still this kind of stigmatized, hushed, quiet conversation that's pretty abstract. I think if you were to send out a, I don't know, a questionnaire and ask every American to define mental health and send it back to you, and then even to define mental illness, I don't know that we'd get two of the same answers. I mean, that's a really hard problem. So one of the reasons that we focus so much on physiology is, you know, as I know that, you know, you talked about um, working with athletes and we touched on that. If I want a specific response from an athlete, I have to understand muscle physiology a little bit. I have to understand the body a bit. I can't give somebody fitness. I can get them power. I can get them strength. I can get them endurance. I can get them different adaptations that we can quantify through metrics. I can't just get them fit because I would just run them through any set of random exercises with this vague idea that they'd be fitter for having done it. But our goal is to help produce or help to, to help the, these young people achieve the adaptations that they seek to achieve. And usually those adaptations are like, people wanna feel good in their brain and body. They want less stress rather than more stress, better sleep rather than worse quality sleep. And they often want these things because there is an underlying goal, a thing that is burning in their heart that maybe in the world that we live in today, they haven't even told anybody because they're scared that somebody's gonna ridicule them or not believe in them. But we all have a thing that's driving us that we really want. And when we work with students, we put that thing out there. When we give a presentation on breathing, for example, to, to really take it out of the, the place where it can live in a stigmatized box of us coming in and using terminology like mental health and having the student not really know what we're talking about and us being unclear. I'll start off and I'll say something like, hey, let's do an exercise together just for fun and see where, see where it takes us. What if everybody just chills out for like a minute and you lay down, you can sit down, whatever you want. Kids will lay down in a heartbeat. It is, um, we've got zero resistance from any age group who's like, I, cool, I'm on my back. I'm like, well, that was easy. Now, what I want you to do from there is I want you to visualize like the most inspired version of your life that you can and not some fantastic Lamborghini driving rock star. The thing that you are aiming at, the place that you are going some vision of the thing that's gonna make you come alive, feel inspired, feel happy, feel ready to rock, feel like you're a contributor in your community, feel full and whole. Visualize that. And I'm not gonna ask you to report back to me on what it is. It's not a test. I just want you to think about it. And when they sit up from that little exercise, I tell them like everything that we're gonna talk about around controlling emotional state and physiological state and mental fitness is just about you getting there because it is hard to get there. Most people don't get there. That's a hard thing to do to bring dreams to life and to get after goals. If you want to dig into a skill set, a toolbox that we found to be valuable among the people that we know who've made it there through the hurdles and barricades and through the hell that it takes to bring a goal to life, this is what this seminar is. So you can take these tools and you can use these tools, or you can leave them, but we're here to lay them out there. And that becomes, I think, at least in our experience, it's become a hard thing to be 
to have a stigma around. It's like reaching goals is hard. The world's complex, you know, the more skills that, that we can cultivate and the more tools at our disposal, the better chance of making it to the goal. It's not guaranteed that you will. And that usually that, that little bit of antagonism often gets the student to realize that we're going to talk straight with them and be honest. David, why students? Why kids? Why did you guys choose that demographic? You know, the, I, wrote, I wrote a post about this on Physiology First just the other day. If you look at basic neuroplasticity, our, our brain's capacity for change, it is so much higher among young people. The capacity to help somebody take ownership of their brain and body in order to reach goals and to make an impact and dent in the universe is just proportionally, it's fertile ground. It is the most fertile ground. I asked someone the other day, you know, when's the last time that on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, you were arguing with another adult and it went somewhere. Some outcome <laughs> was positive. You, they changed yeah. your mind, you changed their mind. We hold on to identities like cloaks and we just won't let go. And with a lot of young people, what, they're, what we find is that they're looking for an inspired, optimistic vision of the future that is also not sugar-coated, that is real. And that is related to, to respecting the challenges that they're facing because they are in this brand new technological landscape that I certainly didn't grow up in. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I didn't have the, the, um, the technologies that shift and change the brain and the body that we deal with right now, incredibly sophisticated, incredibly complex technologies are going to drive processes that these kids are gonna have to navigate if they want to succeed at those. So we started to work with students because our, our goal is to create an optimistic version of the future and they're the ones who are gonna lead it. We thought, let's give them the tools that are, ha- that, that are being talked about so readily in the high performance and like elite fitness space. Inter- embed them into the infrastructure of education. Let, let those who want those tools pick it up and run so they can actually you know, go the distance. I teach at the university and I actually am doing a new course called Neuro Leadership. So we're, we're combining neuroscience with, with leadership. And you said, you know, look under the hood. And, and that's kind of the premise behind my course is, can we demystify what's going on, not only in our brains, but also, you know, in our bodies. And once we understand what those mysteries really are trying to tell us, it's a lot easier to deal with and a lot easier to manage. So I, I just, I, I love that so much that, that you're covering that. Let me ask you this, David, why are we not teaching these skills at every level of the educational system? Uh, these are life skills that, that I, I keep thinking if, if everybody were taught these and it, even if only 10% of the people out there, you know, took them to heart, I think we, we would have such a, a better world. And so why do you think uh, we don't see more of this? Why, why don't we see this in our formal educational systems? It is such an incredibly important question. It's such a good question. And I, I think, well, one, to go back to the, to what we just circled around is Without pretty concrete science, it's hard to put things into the infrastructure of public education. You know, when we first started doing a lot of breath research with with neuroscientists who were studying human respiration, we even got some pushback from some people who were like, hey, why do you have to westernize and quantify everything? Why can't we just learn to feel? And it's like, well, because you can't put that into a curriculum in public education. You can't put that into a program for hospital patients. You can't put that into a... um, a formalized educational program if it doesn't have the science behind it. And if, if you can take the basic science that allows you to begin the conversation, 
then we recognize that, that all of this is a lot more complex than any peer-reviewed paper can ever cover, but it allows you to actually have the conversation. So I think that the first part of your question is, we now have enough research on so many topics. We'll go back to breathing. There is so much research linking breathing and breathing dysfunction to anxiety and stress and better breathing to states of attention, uh, increased attention, memory, and focus. But now it's a lot easier to embed them. The challenge is, again, coming down to language. Being able to use consistent language year after year is how you drive a narrative home. But to talk about optimizing performance is one, you know, it's, it's one story. To talk about helping students beat anxiety, that's one story. To talk about mental health, mental illness, mental fitness, to talk about physiology, the mind, the brain, the body. These are all really different ways of trying to say the same thing. And I don't know that we've found as, as, a, as a movement of people who care about this, the narrative that hits home for the, the, the mom or the dad or the family who is working 50 hours a week, 60 hours a week, coming home, wondering why their child is dealing with panic attacks. They can't really figure it out. They have never had a conversation on a lot of this stuff. What narrative hits home? And when you talk about helping kids succeed and optimize their performance and reach their goals, it doesn't sound like a crisis. It sounds mm. like a nice thing to do. Yeah. When you talk about working to end a youth anxiety crisis that is skyrocketing, where suicide is the second leading cause of death among our kids, that should drive us mad just from an objective perspective and a societal perspective. Looking at a civilization where that is a true fact should, should make us jump to action. But that conversation is dark. That conversation is hard. That conversation can be scary. And the people who go to engage in that conversation are taking on a certain level of scrutiny. I'm well aware that whenever I talk about mental health, people begin to assess my mental health. <laughs> That's what they do. They think yeah, I'm a person talking about mental health. Let's listen to this. I wonder if he can, you know, um, can bring this conversation to life in a way that I can relate to, or am I looking for underlying issues that I expect to be there? Because in order to care, you must be dealing with this yourself. And what we work to remind people is health means health. Health means health. Health does not mean illness. Someone asked why we work so much on mental illness. I said, actually, I, I don't work very much on mental illness. If you're dealing with an actual mental illness, because we have not really found a way to talk about that in a scientific way, um, then you probably want to work with somebody who's a specialist in that illness, not some, yeah. <laughs> not some person running a nonprofit around uh, bringing a physiology-based education to a school. If you have any illness, you should probably be talking to a specialist um, who specializes in that illness. But when you begin to talk about basic physiological responses, normal responses that the body leverages as a mechanism, as an illness, you are having a very convoluted, very, very, very unclear conversation. So to, to bring that point home, I'll often say to students, you know, I want you to imagine as I'm presenting, imagine I just pour myself a little shot of espresso and I bang it back. I'm talking with you guys. And I pour another one, I bang it back. Eight, nine, 10, 12 shots, at some point here, if I continue to bang back shots of espresso, you will see a change in my physiological state, a change in my presentation, a change in my mannerisms, a maybe I'll be pouring sweat. 
you'll see a change in my breathing, my heart rate will elevate, and yet I've not developed a mental illness in the time that we began this conversation. I've simply shifted my physiology through a stimulant that is designed to have this effect. So that's the conversation we constantly wanna have is, what is an illness and what is a perfectly natural physiological response to the stimulus that these young people are exposed to either willingly through behaviors or willingly through the behaviors of social media and technology or inadvertently by a world that's pretty stimulating? What should the brain and body do in 2020? Because if we call something an illness, that's actually a natural physiological response. We're having a very confused conversation. So true. And when you're saying you're using caffeine as a stimulant that changes your physiology, I'm going to go to the opposite end of the spectrum or maybe not that opposite, but let's talk about drugs. I'm curious. Um, we both are. What is your feeling on psychotropic drugs? Because, you know, a lot of people need to take them if they are suffering from a mental illness, but I think that's really blown up and um, expanded to the ginormous percentage of um, people and let alone college students in particular that are suffering from anxiety and depression and, and, and that thing. How do you feel about that? And how do you talk to people about drugs? It, it, you know, it's such a great question because we know that by based on the statistics, a lot of the students in the room are probably on some type of, of antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication. So we're very, very, very careful to A, not stigmatize that. And B, not, not, not to critique um, any decision made outside of our sphere of knowledge and the conversation that took place with hopefully a qualified professional who took all of these elements of physiology, behavior, neuroscience, um, lifestyle into full account and actually made a clear diagnosis that this person has an illness for which a drug is required. How many times, David, do you think that happens? Were they I, actually? I, 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 I would say that it probably it happens in very rarely. That's, that's what I that, thought you'd say. And that is the challenge. So, it, it, when you ask, I, I had I was giving a presentation, and, and um, I love to ask the students, who here thinks like stress and anxiety are big problems, like big global problems? Every hand goes up, every single time. I'll say, cool. Like, who here thinks that they're problems like locally, like here in your school? something we should, we should worry about, all hands go up. I'll ask, cool, like who here can define stress or anxiety? And I've never had a single hand go up in any seminar we've ever given. I did have a young woman raise her hand and say, I got diagnosed with anxiety and I just wanna die. And we got down the, the portal of conversation to get back to, well, what is anxiety? And she said, I have no idea. Well, so what is it? Talking in these vague and abstract terms, and we're using pharmacological solutions to solve problems that we can't even talk about in a scientific, clear, tangible, measurable, direct way. And that to me is a major, major problem, especially because these drugs can be very hard to get off. Fair. How do you define it when you've got a room full of students that can't answer that question and they want to know? They're probably like, I don't know a, what anxiety is. Will you tell me? There's <laughs> a lot of adults that want to know that answer That's too. That's fair enough. So what we'll do to answer that is we'll show a video. We had, we had the honor of going out a couple of years ago, me and my team to Stanford University um, to be part of an amazing experiment that Dr. Andrew Huberman, brilliant neuroscientist out of Stanford, is doing. And essentially he, him and his team have created a, a virtual reality experiment, which is kind of like a fear box. And it allowed you to walk in 
and be exposed to these different threats and different, you know, not terrifying scenarios, but definitely stimulating, arousing, scary scenarios that would replicate the kind of stress and anxiety that you'd face in life. Not sheer terror, just I'm going to, I'm going to speak on stage. I'm going to have a tough conversation, that kind of stress. And begin to measure what actually changes in the brain and body. What do we see from the standpoint of skin temperature, pupil dilation, respiration, heart rate? What happens to a body? And, a, and, and as much as you can get a sense of what's happening in the brain, when someone is anxious or stressed, and the second part of that was what behaviors that can be done on the spot help you leverage those states. So to help students understand that, um, the idea of anxiety, we showed them this video from Stanford. And then we take one of the tools that came out of that wonderful experience, which is writing on a board, a whole line of very simple physiological states. We have panic. And I ask the students, can you relate to that state? Are we talking about something that we understand? Hands go up. We have awake, but I'm alert, I'm up. All hands go up, people can relate to that. Awake and calm, sleepy, asleep, coma, and dead. And we take them through kind of the arc of physiological spectrum. I'm so panicked, I'm going to have a panic attack. I am asleep. And when we present it through this, um, this, this chart, we can then start to ask students, well, who here has been awake and alert and ready to rock the world, but it's 2.15 in the morning and you're staring at the salem. And they say, well, I've all been there. And I'm like, cool, what's, what do you do? Like, what, what's in your toolbox? What do you do when you want to get from highly awake and alert to sleepy? What, what do you do when you want to access a different state? And when they can start to think that way, we can take them to the other side of the curve and say, what do you do when it's two o'clock and you're sleeping and want to be awake? And once we've had that conversation and they start to look at, a, at, a, at the behave, at engaging in behaviors to help them access desired states, then we bring in these conversations about the nervous system. Then we talk about the concept of arousal versus anxiety. What is sympathetic nervous system arousal? But if we'd started with that, we would have lost everybody in the room. So but by the time that we pull out a brain and a spinal cord and start to talk about the different functions of the nervous system and what it is to be highly aroused, meaning I'll use the espresso example again, I'd be in a pretty high state of arousal if I just sat here on this podcast drinking nothing but espresso. And we can look at what the brain and body would interpret that stimuli as you know, what state it would put me in. I think that the, very, the word anxiety probably needs to be reevaluated at a pretty deep level because it comes with a lot of um, baggage that doesn't also offer us clarity. Some things come with baggage and they also offer clarity. Some things come with baggage and are just as abstract as they were in general. So maybe we need to really be thinking about how we move a conversation forward where terms like physiological state and autonomic nervous system arousal mean something to someone other than people in the neuroscience and sport community. So we really help them demystify the words by learning what the words actually signify and what behaviors they're designed to leverage. I, we always say to students, I promise, I promise this is not a punishment handed down from the gods. This is a, this is a, a response that your body's well-equipped for, well-designed for, to get you to leverage a behavior. We can have a conversation about what behavior you might want to leverage to get to the state you want to be in, to get to the goal that you were heading towards. Yeah, arousal regulation, you know, the, the, uh, I remember when I was first learning this, I said, I want to learn more about arousal. I, I called it arousal control back then. And so I went to Amazon and I said, uh, I need a book on arousal control. 
Let me tell you, that's not the thing you want to search for on Amazon. <laughs> well, so they, yeah, they, 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 not not what not what I was looking for. Uh, but yeah, arousal regulation I think is is a big one, and uh, learning that I think you kind of touched on this that this is a natural response, and not only is it a natural response, but when you understand it and know how to use it, it can actually be an advantage for you, and so. How many people know that walking around on the sidewalk? And, and so it's, it's so wonderful that you are, you're educating these people. Uh, I, I assume they're all young people. Do you work with adults at all? Oh, we absolutely do. So we have, we have three things going on in our lives that we're, that we're really sort of committed to. And I talk about we as me and my, my partner, Lex Clark, our team here at The Distance Project, what we're doing um, together. Because The Distance Project, our gym, is really a tight community. And we've taken on a lot of projects together, the people who are involved here. Sometimes I say we because it's never just me. It's a team of people who care about these issues. It's our board of directors. It's, it's a, it takes a, a small troop here to try to push this work forward. So the Distance Project is our gym and our strength and conditioning center and endurance training center. Uh, Breathe to Perform is a, is a consulting company that my partner and I run. And we do breath education consulting. We work with schools. We work with, uh, with teams. We work with companies talking specifically about respiratory physiology in a way that we hope hits home, does not use jargon, but uses hopefully powerful narratives and metaphors and stories that get people to understand why mastering your breathing is a power tool for the 21st century. Mm. And we do that a lot. And the, the work we were doing at Breathe to Perform really became one of the driving forces to want to start the nonprofit because I recognized how many public schools and, and other educational facilities could not work with a consulting company or work with anybody on this stuff. We were working with banks, we were working with sports teams. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, I want to be having this conversation with new people, with people, with people who are performing at such a high level. But I want to help to build a bridge so that these conversations are happening in high school classrooms, across college campuses, that somebody doesn't have to wait until they stumble upon an Instagram post or an article or a book to recognize that controlling your physiological state is the thing that separates the pack in the day and age that we're in. It is a power tool for performance, a power tool for self-management. And those things become power tools for fulfillment because then you're in a position that you can actually give back to your community. Then you can leverage what you've learned. Then you can do the thing that I think is at the heart of what we're designed to do, which is keep the circle of knowledge going and be a person who gives back. I think that that's a really, really important part of our own well-being. So that's sort of how that all came to be. We work a lot with adults at Breathe to Perform and uh, the Distance Project. And through our nonprofit, we also work to reach faculty first. Because if the faculty has these tools, we all know how contagious stress is. If we can help teachers and administrators Mm, manage anxiety and stress, they're going to lower, uh, or they're going to impact student stress and anxiety just by the nature of their being. So we work with the faculty and then, and then we take the work to the students and then to the parents. So fantastic uh, that you start with the faculty and the parents. I, I think that's brilliant. How can I put you on the spot and, and ask you, I know this is probably hard to do in just a few minutes on a podcast, but those people that are listening that are identifying a lot with what you're saying, or maybe they have children that uh, they identify with going through some of these issues. Can you give us a few minutes of 
exercises that you use, or what would you tell them just as a very high level, uh, exercise that they could use with breathing or really kind of managing their physiology when they're going through a rough time, as you would imagine, we're all going through leading up to elections or with COVID. Um, yeah. What, what can you, what can you give us in a couple of minutes? 100%. So the exercise that I always give is never the one that people want. And the reason for that is we're kind of, you know, we're kind of um, wired to a degree to hope that maybe there's a key out there. There's a key to unlock the state that I'm in. If I could just find the key, I'd have this, this one hammer to, to apply to all problems. But what we like to, to share with people is it's, it's what we do consistently. It's the consistent practice of optimizing systems before they get um, to the point that they're actually causing a physiological cascade that feels like anxiety and stress. So the two conversations happening in the, our breath education space, conversation one is that we can use a breathing exercise in times of stress, times of anxiety, times where peak focus is needed to leverage a desired state. But the conversation that we're always having first and we'll stay on and we'll really drive in is the other conversation is that consistent breathing dysfunction can drive high states of autonomic arousal, stress, and anxiety. And most of the students and parents that we're working with are breathing in a way at, at rest 24-7 that should, by nature, cause those processes and cause them to feel a little bit anxious and stressed. So we're always working to circle it back and say, if we can get you to do one thing, it would be to eliminate mouth breathing. 95% of your life that you are not talking to another human being. And if we can just make that one shift to using our nose as it was designed to breathe and regulate oxygen and carbon dioxide levels in the body, you'll find that you need breathing exercises for the purpose of on-the-spot stress reduction a lot less. If we can't make that base level change to get to what would look like functional breathing 24-7, we're going to find ourselves constantly upregulated and trying to downregulate as if we're hacking a computer. <laughs> you know, I'm stressed, I'm anxious, I have to downshift, I have to upshift versus saying, wait, I want to be in a pretty resonant state. I want to be in a state that is um, in line with the environment that I'm in. Where should my breathing and heart rate and, and physiological sort of metrics be when I'm driving a car on the way to work? Where should they be on a 5k run? Where should they be in a, in a hot and heated workout type of competition setting? Where should they be if I'm sitting at a classroom or sitting on Zoom? And when you can help um, students or anybody get a little clearer on the baseline for how we should be breathing and feeling at rest, then when things get away from them, it's a lot easier to grab the reins, grab the wheel, grab the handle and say, wait a minute, I normally am breathing lightly through my nose and I'm normally pretty attentive to the world environment around me. And I normally feel pretty calm and focused. Now somebody cut me off in traffic and flipped me the bird. And now my mouth is wide open, my pupils are dilated, I'm trying to get their license plate, I'm about to lay on the horn. And what we always remind the students is, look, if you're gonna let somebody else rock your waters, you're gonna be in for a rocky, rocky uh, uh, trip here. Don't let anybody else knock, your, your, um, your, your, knock you off course. Don't let other people out in the world change your state. Have some basic idea of how you feel when you feel your best. Leverage the behaviors that put you in that state more often. And if, if that state gets away from you and you start to feel angry, you start to feel stressed, you start to feel anxious, catch it before it's a cascade. Mm. There is nothing like trying to talk to somebody who's in the middle of a panic attack 
or the middle of an irate bout of anger and hope that you can do that through a clear perceptual lens where you're going to have a conversation that's meaningful. You're really going to be trying to talk somebody back to baseline physiology that's resonant. Gosh, yes. Emotion regulation, right? I mean, yeah. that's kind of what we're talking about. And, and I, I was thinking uh, I'm in deep trouble because I'm a mouth breather. So, so breathing through your nose, that, that's going to be something I need to work on. Uh, I, and David, I, 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 there's so much I want to ask you and, and we're almost out of time here, but is it, I, I've heard this before that we don't breathe properly. I mean, for the most part as a society, is that just a, a matter of slowing down and breathing deeper or is it much more complicated than that? I would say that it's much more complicated and it's also very simple. Meaning, you know, if you're familiar with Pareto's principle, the 80-20 yep. power law distribution, the 20% the behavior that produces the 80% of, of value and gain is simply working to eliminate mouth breathing. And we can talk about why, if you'd like, we can go quite deep into, into why that's so important. But then you get to the 20% and you actually start to realize that when you look at breathing, breathing drives the actual shape of the axial skeleton it, it drives human movement. It drives movement patterns. The way that my ribs function determine how my arms work. The way that my ribs function to tell, determines where my pelvis is. Now you're analyzing an athlete and you're looking at their squat pattern or you're looking at their running pattern. And you start to strip away the, the muscles for a little while and look at the actual bones and say, wait a minute, I'm starting to understand how breathing has shaped you into the pattern that you're in. Now you can look at breathing from an athletic performance and, and, and pain standpoint. You can look at breathing from a, um, the standpoint of like high performance training for athletes who are training at a competitive level. You can, you can make such a dent in their mm. previous personal records because often they're breathing dysfunctionally. But if you can take that one blanket tool of saying, if I can continue to breathe through my nose, I'm going to increase oxygen utilization, even though it can sound like a contradiction. A lot of people think, well, smaller and mouth is bigger. And what we like to say at our seminars is who here has used a shop vac or any kind of commercial car wash vacuum? Those things can suck up a wallet. They'll suck <laughs> your eyeglasses up, right? They're small and highly pressurized. Who here has used a dustbuster running out of batteries? It is big and wide and very, very bad at pulling in air. So the nose is this high powered fueling system for actual oxygen uptake. And the science on carbon dioxide tolerance, which plays a major role in our breathing, which plays a major role in the, in the desire or not desire, the behavior of mouth breathing and its relationship to anxiety is incredible. And if mm. you go to our website, uh, the breathe to perform program.com, you'll see a lot of research on this there. We had the honor, we have the honor of partnering with a neuroscientist in Brooklyn who's working in epileptic neurosurgery. And in that very rare uh, lens of working with epileptic patients, He's able to put intracranial implants on the brain and we're able to take them through different breathing exercises. And when you get a close lens on how breathing affects the amygdala, how it affects the motor cortex, how our brain is scanning, not oxygen, but CO2 levels mm. to make sure that it shouldn't like make a, like that's the number one priority. It's not whether I have a drink, it's not whether I have a meal, it's not whether I watch something good on Netflix tonight, it's whether I can breathe and the impact on the nervous system as it's making sure that we have that one critical life need met drives all of these critical processes. So the, 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 the simplest thing I can tell anybody is give yourself one day, 24 hours, to really work to be attentive to maintaining nasal breathing. Don't be upset if you don't do it all day long. 
but suddenly you'll become more aware of it. You'll become aware of the change in your state that occurs. And you'll even be a little more aware of becoming aware. Mm. We always say to, to, to students, like, you know, breath awareness is self-awareness. So if you want to expedite self-awareness with a team of middle school athletes or a, a high school class, have them pay attention to their breathing for one day and have them notice that if they were working to maintain nasal breathing and if they did it up until they got the nasty DM from somebody or had an altercation in the hallway or got into a fight with their parents, then they start to notice when the body gets away from them. And once that happens, it's a lot harder to have a clean slate for the mental processes that we started the show talking about. Uh, what, what a breathing great through way. the nose would be the number one thing. And then you can go deeper, deeper, deeper down yeah, the, yeah. the breathing rabbit hole. I think that that's a great takeaway for our, our, our listeners uh, to, to maybe wrap this up. Yeah, no. And I, I will ask you that question, David, what advice do you have if you could kind of wrap it into a nutshell for everybody listening before we head out today um, when it comes to them at home, being able to build mental toughness, resilience and grit into their daily lives. Gratitude. Mm. Gratitude as a practice, as a neural exercise, as a thing that you do, whether it doesn't matter how you feel, whether you have baggage attached to that word, whether you've put it um, in a box that is somehow metaphysical. Gratitude is, is perspective. Gratitude is leveraging your actual neurobiology to be in an optimal state, to recognize that when you look at where we are in the world and the opportunities that we have, it is absolutely amazing that we can be conscious, sentient, talking, feeling, loving beings. And it's so easy to forget that. So the number one thing I would, I would say to everyone is wake up in the morning and before you check the phone, before you, you do anything else, before you think anything else, before the train of thought of, oh, I have a meeting at one o'clock and I have that podcast episode and I'm gonna be, before you do anything else, turn the first thought of the day to gratitude, some in, a, in an authentic way. Like, I'm so glad I have this big fuzzy dog. I am a lucky individual. I'm so glad I have my partner laying here next to me. Wow. I'm so glad that I have a roof over my head. I'm looking at the roof. That's amazing. There were so many times in our history where that would have been such a luxury. Take that first window of the day to engage in the neural exercise of taking control of the thought stream with the process of gratitude and the lens for the rest of the day is just, it's, it's a whole different world out there. All right. Are you ready to hear about how to get in touch with the CEO and coach? Well, you can find him on YouTube and his book on Amazon under Breathe to Perform and check out his nonprofit org, Physiology First, or learn more at The Distance Project. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.